0: I had twenty five dollars in my bank account and I needed to fill up gas to go to Bolton to pick up the check. Because she was like, I can mail it or you can come pick it up. I was like, no, no, no I'm coming. <laughs> I I'm, I'm in the neighborhood today. You know, I'll come pick it up. Yeah. So then I had to find uh, I was at RBC and they can only take you out 20 bucks. I didn't want to take out 20 bucks. So I had to go to a BMO to take out ten dollars so I could fill up ten dollar gas to go to Bolton to pick up the, the 20 grand check. Deposited and the life changed.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Bluemix episodes of 2020. Got a great lineup set up for you guys. Uh, as you notice, we got a new location now. We're filming out of Huddle Share Space, it's a new co working space out of Scarborough. We're operating out of here as well. Uh, but of course, we got to give out a main shout out to MCRO, who continues to be a mainline sponsor for the, for the show and for everything that we do. So remember, guys, if you're looking for any apps to get made any, make any apps, uh, create any software, definitely consider them in your process. Uh, they do a great job. They support us, and they can definitely support you. Happy 2020, awesome. guys. Satish, man, we finally got you on the show. Yes, thank you, for, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, man. We're in Scarborough. We're in Scarborough. It's crazy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been following your journey online. Uh, I'm like... I started following you, so, uh, somebody um, tagged you in one of our posts. So we originally had a, um, uh, like on the podcast an opening and we asked on LinkedIn, like, you know, somebody dropped out last minute. Can anybody come up with an overwhelming response rate? And somebody that we were mutually connected, mutually connected to, Suji, I think, um, you know, tagged you in the yeah. post. <laughs> That's how I first started following you. Yeah. And since I hit that follow button, my LinkedIn is blowing up your content, <laughs> right? And part of what you're doing is trying to create an incubator. And yeah. I'm like, who's this crazy guy trying to create his own incubator? Because I mean, I've been working in the institutional environment of incubators like Saturdays, and you see, I mean, there's just a churn that required to create good talent and good good uh, innovation and yeah. things like that. Right? It takes a lot. So I started asking around, and you know, you have quite a resume as well to back up your uh, your move into the space. So let's talk a little bit about that, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so what's your background? Like, how did you get involved in the innovation?
0: Yeah. So so I think uh, the the one sort of summation of my entire wow. life. Uh, and I and I tell people I, I've lived sort of two lives, you know, one before 15 and one after 15, um, and up to the age of 14 or 15, mm-hmm. I was born in, in in Chennai, South South India, uh, moved to Singapore, when I was four. My parents are are involved, sort of, you know, thoughtful immigrants that wanted the best for their kids. My dad's a super smart engineer, typical Indian from South India, right? Like so. You know, we moved to Singapore because he's from a family of 15 and he's like, we're not going to do anything here. We're not, you know, we're we're rice farmers and corn farmers, but like, there's no future for, for you know, my family here. So we moved to Singapore and most of my memories start in Singapore. because mm-hmm. I was so young. And so most times when I don't, you know, when I, when I don't think about it, I say I'm a Singaporean. And then people usually are like, wait, like where where yeah, are you really yeah, yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can find I'm from India. Right. Uh, so that's how deep my sort of relationship with Singapore is. But you know, when you're, when you're growing up in Singapore, this is the 80s. It's also one of the most racist places to be in. If you're not Asian and it's run by the dynasty for so long, you don't have a lot of room to grow. You're kind of fixed. And I didn't understand any of it until 13. And you have to do a countrywide uh, exam. And at 13, they decide what's your career path as a government, Mm. which I had no idea. And I've never been the smartest kid. I work really hard, but I have to like things before it clicks in my head. So school for me was always a thing I had to do, but it never really made sense to like, why am I learning all this stuff? Mm. And so, you know, we took this test and I have a younger brother. uh, I crashed and bombed in that test. He killed it. And we get these little papers mailed to us. One was like, Satish, you know, it didn't do too well, but uh, we've got an entire path mapped out as a blue collar worker. You know, here's his options, garbage cleaner, trucker, blah, blah, blah. And then the other son, you know, he's smart, he could be a business dude. Parents were crushed. I was like, how did a little country tell me I'm dumb and stupid? Yeah. Like, it makes no sense. And, and, you know, the greatest gift my parents gave was to move for many yeah. reasons, but the most important was because they didn't think it was right. And so, you know, when we moved to Canada, the second part of my life really started because when I landed in my head, I'm this dumb, stupid kid that's not good for anything. Academic is, and me, we don't get along. So I've, I've settled into this life of, you know, average in my head. And then I go to Pearson and I meet people of different color and vision and, and, and aspiration and this support for athletes and arts and drama. And, and school is important, but they were also encouraging other skills which I didn't know I had because I was always gauged on, like, how smart are you in class? So now I've got teachers saying, man, you're good at basketball. You're good at music. You're good at drama. You're good at analytical thinking. You're good at business. And I'm like, who are we talking about? Because the kid that got on a plane like a year ago was not the same kid. And so Mm -hmm. at that very early age, I realized a couple of things. One, everything is fucking made up. Yeah. Okay. Crack one. Two, if... A bunch of smart people told me that I'm not good and then a bunch of smart people tell me I'm good then I get to not define my own version because everybody else is defining it. So I started on this journey at the age of 15 or 16 to say, okay, who am I? What are the things that I want to do? What kind of legacy do I want to leave behind? What kind of person do I want to become? And then what is the narrative to learn and unlearn? And that took me on a entrepreneurial journey and three great companies that i've built over the last 25 years lots of lessons exits the other 99 that nobody talks about that failed and bombed but taught me some really good lessons in life and so the incubator to get back to your question is a natural evolution for me because i've always been on this journey of trying to figure out how to not improve my only my life but everybody that i touch and so after i sold the last company blue band digital after 12 years I got a chance to work with Ryerson to set up a new incubator for them, specifically for science and, and engineering. I didn't know what it's like to start an incubator, but I was like, cool, let me go help startups because that's my ecosystem. And that's when I realized, man, there's so many awesome stuff. There's access to VC money. There's a great angel network. There is a lot of you know incubators and co-working spaces that are helping people. But there's a whole segment that's not accessible for this service. And majority of them are new, new, new immigrants. Majority of them are minorities. A lot of them are female founders, and we don't even give them a chance to explore their business. They get discounted just because of who they are and where they're from, and the fact that we don't understand them. Mm. And because I'm that guy, and I've been a new immigrant, and I am a minority, and I've had to, from a very young age, hustle and work really hard to to get the things that I want in life. I really sort of connected with them. And then we started coaching and mentoring and really, you know, dealing with, you know, not just the business side, but the emotional side that entrepreneurs go through alone a lot of the times, right? So that's what my journey was. And so, you know, like any good businessman, I tried to figure out what's the right partners, what's the right incubators, what's the right co-working spaces that I can partner with. Nobody really got the big vision. It was either pay rent or, you know, not. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to pay rent anyways, then I might as well do my own thing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm a big Tupac fan, you know, and he says it, you know, you can only knock on the door so long, eventually you're going to kick it down. (laughs) And I'm in my I'm in a headspace where, you know, I've earned the stripes. I put in my time. I've got the credibility. I've got the funding. I've got the, the passion. Let me just kick some doors down and see what happens. So that's that's what we started doing. And in that journey alone, there's so much stories. It's just crazy. And it's I'm only in it like six months. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's great, it's great, man. Like this, this is hopefully my last
1: move. Yeah.
0: You know? Um,
1: so let's talk a little bit about that uh, that journey, right? Like, I mean, you just give it a lot to digest, but give give it pretty much an overview of like your motivations. I mean, we have a lot of guests who come on this show and they talk mostly about what they do, like the, the hardcore things and it takes a lot for them to share before they get to their motivations. But you jump right into it. Yeah. That's what I really appreciate. Like you talk about, you know, it's my past, this is what really scarred me, and this is what really pushes me to do these things. But I really want to get into some of the competencies that you have done, because I mean, they, they do add up. Yeah. I mean, you helped in, uh, create um, that uh, innovation hub at Ryerson. Yeah. Right? Uh, can we talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so Science Discovery Zone, um so Ryerson has, has zones, right? Uh, DMZ is the most famous, which is also the most elitist now. You know, I think if you go on their website, they can only accept like 7.84% or something. It's like scientifically yeah, ridiculous. Demand, yeah. and I was like, wow, well, we want the best of the best the best to help them. Well, the best of the best the best doesn't need a lot of help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, but it makes you look good. Awesome, I get it. Um, but since the model worked, all the faculties created their own smaller zones. And the idea was to encourage people that don't want to do co-op to invest time and university supported resources to experiment in business. Mm. Unfortunately for people from science and engineering, stereotypically we're taught we're not business people, that we're introverts, not extroverts. Yeah. Da, da, da. So the opportunity came up to say we're starting a new incubator, but there's not a lot of people in science who build businesses and uh, who turn introvert into extrovert. You're the only example we know of. Do you want to help you know start this thing? And I said, great, as so long as- What was your
1: relationship with Ryerson at the time?
0: Oh, I was just an alumni. Like I went okay. to Ryerson, I studied computer science. Uh, I was the first student body course union president at Brown. Like I've always been that guy trying to change the diversity conversation. And Cool. And, and, when, did, when, when did you graduate? Uh, 2000. 2000. 99. Okay. Uh, and uh, by 97, 98, I was like, man, uh, this, this thing called GPA that matters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because for me, it was like, hey, you know, if I get a decent mark, I graduate. I'm still a computer scientist uh, and I still get to play ball and I had a fantastic sports life, you know, playing in tomorrow, three times champions Had a mean three point jump shot. Like I was that guy. Right. Um, I was already DJing by then in the music scene. So university fit in, but it wasn't my all in because I didn't really want to be a computer scientist. I just didn't know I wasn't going to be an engineer. I didn't want to be an accountant. I wanted to be finance like my parents wanted. So. The, the best way to, like, say, screw you to parents, but still get their support was to go into computer science because <laughs> they kind of supported it because yeah. they didn't get it. Right. Um, but then I was like, oh, we need to, we need a high GPA to get jobs. And so I think it was third year. There was a, a, a job fair and I met KPMG, Accenture uh, and a few other, like, you know, smaller consulting. Kids, and all of them were like, man, your GPA sucks. And I was like, yeah, but I got this skill and that skill and this yeah, skill. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so now GPA is too late to fix. Yeah. What else can I do? So I started my first company called Spider Design okay. in 1998. Okay. Uh, web was just coming up, very black and white, horrible websites. Yeah. But I figured it's not going to go away. Customers that, that are not on it are going to suffer. So I just started calling everybody in the local area, auto shops, warehouses, everybody saying, Hey, I'm studying this thing called internet. You have to be on the web. I'll do for free, and if you like the work, you pay me for it. Uh, and most of them said yes because they heard about it, but they don't know what it was. Yeah, yeah. So I started just making awful black and white websites, <laughs> you know, construction guys, plumbers, auto Man. manufacturers, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and at the end of each one of these sessions, I would give them my resume, and then on the back of the resume, I'll include all 249 members of my class saying, these are my competition. So if you want to hire anybody from this list, like hire me first because we're already homies. I know you. I know your family. I know whatever, right? <laughs> uh, and, and the first time I learned a business lesson was that it's, you know, volume matters. Building relationships matters. Really caring about the other person's success matters. And then it's, it's, it's never about money first, but funny enough, money always comes to you. Yeah. So when I said these things... You know, the first person to to, to get a call and they needed other services is me. So now Spider Design went from websites to, oh, can you teach this thing called Word to my employees? Of course I can. Do you know anything about email? Of course I do. Oh, our, you know, modem is acting out. Oh, I know how to fix it. I lived in help files for two years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Literally, I said yes to everything. Then I would read the help files. And I also learned another important lesson in life, which is the other person doesn't know what you don't know. Mm. So I would just go and teach these courses and everybody would ask me questions that I don't understand. I would say, this is a great question. Let me find out. And I come back next week and I've sold another class, <laughs> you know, so you're learning all these things organically. Yeah. Because nobody's teaching you this stuff and you got to make money because I'm living on my own by now. My parents have kicked me out. They're like, we don't know what the hell you're doing. (laughs) Like, man, I'm 20. I have an apartment, no furniture. I'm eating ramen noodles on good days with like fake sausage in it. Like, this is weird. Yeah. But I'm learning life lessons.
1: So what was your parents' reaction when you started your company? They hated it.
0: Yeah. 100% because they still had no idea what I was doing. And the fact that you know, uh, being self-employed, man, I was on, on the road all the time. I was also still DJing and making some side money. So for them, I was just always out. And we lived in Scarborough. So, you know, connecting the dots to something evil was easy. Yeah. So what's this guy doing? You know, he's out all the time, must be selling drugs or doing something. <laughs> he's out late night. He's always tired in the mornings. And I was like, nah, it's, it's called consulting. And da-da-da. To a point where like, man, like, I need to get a car because my very first client was in Bolton, Ontario a big construction company that were paying me 20, 30 K a month to do all sorts of tech stuff. I needed to buy a a car money back then back then. Yeah. Right. Um, and I remember that first pitch, like I went in and then I gave them, you know, the proposal, I had a 20 K in the, in the back and, and me and two other guys were working on it. The server was, was this giant tower that I kept in my car so I, I could work wherever. So I had a giant tower, a monitor and keyboard in the back of my trunk. And I would literally like stop and work wherever I can plug in friends' houses. And uh, to buy the car, I was like, man, I need a car. And my parents are like, no, we're not buying a car. My dad is Indian. So he's like, know, I came to this country with nothing. It took me 20 years to buy a car. You want to buy a car when you're 20? Mm. No way in hell. I'm like, but I can't take the subway to Bolton. Like I need to make money. So then I had to ask a friend whose dad became my surrogate dad to sign the lease so I can get my first car. Wow. That's how crazy it is, man. The hustle is real. And, you know, when I look at, like, what I'm doing now with new immigrants and the work, that's why I said earlier, 50% of the stuff we deal with is internal. And there's no way to solve it because they don't teach people that are not us how to deal with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, so that was Spider Design. Uh, I sold that company uh, in 2000 just as I was graduating. And then I started another company called New Age Consulting. Um, and I was I was curious about e-learning. I was curious about online. I was curious about uh, internet marketing and all this stuff. And so we needed to sort of do something different. And my other two co-founders, I uh, got a job at IBM and got another, another one, got a job at Imperial Oil. They're like, peace out. We got nine to five. And I'm like, man, we're going to, you know, yeah. close all this up, you know, uh, and, and an exit back then. It wasn't like somebody purchased us. We just closed a company with a shit ton of money in the bank. Yeah. Nobody talks about that kind of stuff today. Yeah. It's okay to just close it down because you were making money and you got profit and you take it and everybody splits it. So you shut it down and then I started another company. Uh, and that company, in four years, uh, we became the largest JD Edwards shop in the country. Uh, we, uh, JD Edwards is the ERP. Uh, we got lucky with that software. Again, I was like <clears throat> meddling trying to figure out where I fit in. Um, and, and BI and data intelligence was huge. And so we got into it. What year was this around? This was 2006. 2006. <coughs> Sorry, 2006 when we exited. We started 2000 mm-hmm. uh, and really on the backs of Y2K. So mm-hmm. 1999, when I was still running Spider Design, the world was freaking out that the, everything's going to end. 1999, like, what are we going to do? The year is going to end. All the clocks are going to stop working. And I remember the time, man. Yeah. It was crazy. Uh, and I took one class mm-hmm. that I actually liked in computer science called COBOL. I didn't know that half of the, <coughs> the banking systems and retail systems all ran on COBOL. Mm. So now we have a skill set, we have a labor force, and we have a market that needed it. And they were willing to pay two, three hundred bucks an hour. <coughs> so I hired as many fourth year students as possible. <laughs> I was like, well, we could do it. Yeah. We could save the world. And so, you know. I'm still just a 20 something year old kid but I'm working with Lafarge I'm working with Winners I'm working with CIBC and we got consultants in there working on Cobol trying to solve an issue and 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 I learned another lesson you know what you're worth can sometimes depend 100% on the other person's need and a bottle of water is a buck unless you're in the desert man yeah. and you'll pay me a million for it and I was like okay this is cool so-
1: I mean, I need to ask, like, how's the scoping process? You're, like, at this time, 21, 22 years old, right? You're launching a second company and uh, you decided to hire a bunch of students, all younger than you, yeah. right? And decided to go after these banks in that time. Like, we are, like, only recently have, like, the culture really shifted towards, you know, the youth, young people have some value, you know, To take a meeting property. Like, I remember when I first started my first company when I was 17, 18, like, one of the hardest things we had to do Will be taken seriously. Yeah. Right. How did you at that time, like during like Web 1.0, when people don't really trust the internet yet and applications built on it? How did you get this process started?
0: Yeah. So uh, you know, I think it's almost harder to meet people now because of LinkedIn and social media. Back then, it's really about human connection. So you you do old school marketing, like you call the receptionist, you find out who the person is, you call their extension, and you pretty much got a direct need. The other thing is. We knew exactly what we were selling. I wasn't out there saying, hey, I'm a consulting company. I can do all this stuff. I'm like, you have a Y2K problem. If you're running it on COBOL, I got your guy. And because it was desperate enough, they were just taking anybody that had a skill set.
1: So tell me these banks just took you in just because you said, 100%. 100%. Just that. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. have this problem. Like, was it like they knew they had the problem and COVID 100%. was 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Because resources stuff. weren't around. Right. What about their internal staff? Like, don't they have an internal team for this? The
0: volume of work at the end of that decade was incredible. Because again, imagine you're operating out of massive fear. This wasn't a, you know, my website might go down. This is, everything will stop working yeah banks will stop yeah, was that true like we all the like fear, to... the fear was real what but was... nobody know what would have actually happened
1: okay because like i remember that hype i was like like 10 or 11 at the time and it was white like what the hell are you talking about the world's gonna uh-huh. end because the clock hits yeah exactly like, yeah because
0: they didn't know how to deal with the numeric change and to be quite honest i also didn't understand it but i also didn't have a business and i was living on my own and I've been always good at gambling. What's around the corner, right? Cool. And then the first clients we talked to weren't the Lafarges the and, the, and, the, and, the, and the banks. Mm. There were smaller consulting shops and they're willing to pay us 20, 30, 50 bucks an hour, but by the time we got to the bigger guys, I'm confident in saying, Yo, yeah, I need 200 bucks an hour because I already know you need me more than I need you mm. and at that age and with the crew
1: that I had, what's my worst case? So how long did it take you to get that knowledge gap to that confidence?
0: I oh, I, I think I'm still working on it, man. Because like, <laughs> you never really get it.
1: No, I'm saying for this particular need, right? Oh, for you to go to the banks like that? I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure that a sales cycle out.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it I, was it was uh, 1999, uh, 1998 when we shut down Spider Design. And geez. then for about six to seven months, I was like, what do I do next? I still got rent. I got I to gotta pay. I got to move on. Uh, and then I was talking to a friend. It was like, you know, do you know anything about Y2K and shit? And I'm like, I do, but I'm not really paying attention because... You know, I'm, I'm working on, like, Web 1.0, 1.0, like, and he's like, oh, this is the thing and this is technology, and then he mentioned COBOL, and I was like, oh, I know that language, and I was like, so I just got to tell a bunch of people I know and then just to see what happens, and then he was like, yeah, and then we started trying to figure out who to talk to, then I had some champions in places where they were already working, I had staff that knew friends, and then you realize how the world is really connected yeah. when you know kind of what you want to say, right? If you know what you're talking about and and you know passionately who you want to get to, we're actually pretty smart. It's when you don't know, and you're sort of all over the place trying to figure out who do I talk to that it's a long drawn out process.
1: So let's go back to like how you hired the students, right? Like, so did you first get a contract first and call a bunch of-
0: The first few were literally handshakes. I'm like, yo, you got nothing to do. I got a gig, I'll pay you X amount of dollars. Do you want to work? And most of them are student debt who were living in the OSAP days. Nobody knew what kind of job we're going to get, right? So it's it's an easy sales cycle. And then my worst case was they get in their shit. Okay, we get fired, we move on. Like it's it's got no impact to me, right? Mm -hmm. And that was like a very short time. We're talking like mid-1999 up to December 31st. Once that happened, nobody cared. And right after that, I had to figure out what to sell next. But when we go out to now new clients and go, oh, my clients are winners and Lafarge and CIBC, they didn't look at it as twenty-year-old kids. Yeah, 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 And we were part of the Y2K program. Nobody cared.
1: So by the end of Y2K, like, how many people did you have working? With you uh, I think we
0: were fifteen. Fifteen, about fifteen people. <laughs> yeah, across four was companies. Full time Yeah, full time Full-ti- for about five, six months. Everybody was what just were you working. were operating out of? Like, oh, it was in in the in the client offices. Like, we, we I was like a mini recruiting company without knowing that this is how recruiting companies worked.
1: <laughs> so like, you would get this client, like, uh, you get a client, like, let's say. Um, CIBC. Th- yeah,
0: they'll be like, right. we need three guys. I'm like, okay, we negotiate the rate, and then I'll sign a deal with them as New Age Consulting, and then they'll pay me every 15 days, and I'll pay those guys every 30 days, just to be safe for yeah. cash flow. And I did that for six to eight months.
1: And then you took an arbitrage in between. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, was it directly for the labor, or was it like a per contract? I don't know direct like per hour because they were paying
0: hour. us per hour. So I was like, okay, I'm not gonna pay you more than 50 bucks. That's how, a lot. how did you get legality
1: wise, like signing everything?
0: You know, we're. We were incorporated. We're, you know, on paper. We're no different than any other company, right? Mm-hmm. What I, when I look back, where my biggest risk was my staff because I didn't know employment contracts. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand, you know, uh, what what like uh, staff compensation and you know somebody like I didn't even think we had insurance back then. So if somebody got hurt, like we just ha- didn't have any of those plans because it was just for me, like connecting A B and then go mm-hmm. and then a lot of like what happened in my life, and I think it, it's a pattern that I don't know how to avoid, but I love it now, is I just figure out as I go, yeah. I'm very comfortable changing the fucking tire while I'm driving, yeah. like I'll just do it, we'll yeah. figure it out, yeah, yeah. and that's, that's been my success.
1: I worked with like a, a CEO of a large, pretty, like, pretty successful company, like this guy built a $200 million company, and my past boss, and I got to work alongside of him, and he always talked about this, how he picked it up from his father's way of doing business, Is that he's like Russian too, so it makes it more epic. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he's like, you know, it's like, you know, we jump first off the cliff, then build a parachute on the way down. And I'm like, okay. And then we like, we do that all the time. That's that's how we roll the company. Um, And like, this is what it is being a sales first organization. Or you get the sale, yeah. you get the contract, then figure out how to implement after.
0: Yeah, exactly. And my agency that mm-hmm. I started in 2006 was no different. I didn't come from an agency background. I've never worked in an agency. I knew I had the raw skill sets, right? I, I know camp, online campaign and offline campaign. I know how to build technology. By this time, Flash was king, so we knew what to do in Flash. I had all the pieces. What I didn't know is, you know, how is it gonna come together, right? Like any construction, you can take the same guy and build a mansion, Old little hood rat, right? But we had the skill set. And so for me, that's what gives me the confidence to go, okay, I have got the skill set. I've got the connection. I've got some money to burn. The
1: rest we can figure out. So this agency you built after. So when you shut the company down. Yeah, so in uh,
0: 2004, uh, New Age Consulting was going well. Uh,
1: Sorry, let's talk about like after... After Y2K, what were your clients after? You, yeah, you so, figure out something else to sell, right? So
0: after that, we were like, okay, let's go out and, and, and become a software reseller. Because yeah. a lot of people wanted it. Um, and so we built uh, a technology for a construction company using Lotus Notes. Yeah. I've never been in Lotus Notes. And I was like, I don't know what it is. Uh, but it was somebody using it. They're like, do you understand it? I said, yes. I spent the weekend learning. And I'm like, oh, man, there's a huge market yeah. for Lotus yeah. Domino. Undermarketed in the in the IBM world, so we signed up as a reseller. We built a custom estimation tool for construction, and that was my first SaaS product. We took it out to every construction company, and all of them were still paper based. And so we had a turnkey solution: we'll install the servers, we'll manage it, we'll tech support it, we built the customization, and our software ran pretty much most of the big construction companies for five years. Can you and some of them: uh, Backley's, uh, Ellis Don. What? Uh, who else?
1: um so you you closed us down as a client
0: yeah yeah because again we're talking like in the early 2000 where yeah. we're like how do we how do we put our construction software out there right yeah so we started just pimping it out and, and then, how much
1: would you charge how much was the... uh
0: average install was about 25 grand and nice. then we had you know ongoing monthly support and the customization each one of them had their own little variation we knew at some point it, was, it will end because we weren't committed to the industry because Construction was fun, but it's not—it's not my ideal industry. Especially when you're working with people that are in uh, disaster recovery, they're waiting for the bad shit to happen, mm. and it's a weird business model where you're, you're waiting for emergency to happen for you to make money. And we're enabling that. So I was like, ah. So when we're doing all this. I found a partner who was working at JD Edwards, and he's like, man, I'm working for uh, a, an agency, and they're pimping me out at you know high rates. Uh, but a lot of opportunities. But if you have an infrastructure, I can bring some clients and we can build that out. Uh, I said, okay, so we're already in Lotus Notes, let's expand to JD Edwards. So he came on board and through him, we were able to get Wrigley's, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they became our staple like 80% client. Um, and then we were just moving into SAP and uh, this was around 2006 and then we had some partner meltdowns. Um, people wanted to get married. Some people wanted to, you know, sort of do other things. I had a creative itch mm. that was coming out. Um, around 2004, we won, um, a top 50 profit Canada, McLean thing. Oh, wow! So I went to this golf, uh, weekend resort thing and I met so many other business owners for the very first time. And I was blown away from all these other business models. And I was like, man, I feel like we're stuck in like this old age of stuff. Uh, And while I like selling ERP, it it wasn't exciting for me because it's all sort of behind the scenes stuff. You know, we're stuck in big NDA legal documents because we're implementing these large systems that'll save you 1% over 10 years. And I can't really take my case study and talk to somebody else because we're buried in NDAs. So every sale was a brand new sale. Other than the logos I can put up, I can't share what I did. So sales just became harder and harder and harder. Uh, And I've also been like working since 18. And I was starting to get a bit of a burnout. My girlfriend at that time was like, either we get married or like, what's going down? So I was like, man. So I said, okay, let me get out of this business. So I sold myself back to my partners. Uh, They still ran it for a couple of years before I went down. I said, let me get out and just take a breather because I've been working since 18. And that was around 2005 and six. Um, and I was like, what do I do next? And one of the companies that I met uh, is a company called Pareto. And they were an advertising agency. And uh, the guy I said at the golf resort, drunken partying, he's like, man, I'd love for you to come work for me. Like, we need some young energy. And I was like, I don't want to work for anybody, man. Like, I'm cool. I'm, I'm good at what I'm doing. Uh, and then I reached out to them because they were at Vic Park and Shepherd. I was at home. I was like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm, I'm in between ideas. Uh, what's going down uh, and they had just invested in a large half a million dollar erp software like we don't know what we're doing so do you want to come hang out for a bit mm-hmm. i said cool so i took on a six month cto gig my wife well, my wife was pregnant at that time with that one uh and so i was like let me get out you know, of the house for a little bit so i joined them as cto first day i walked into an agency i was blown away I was like, you have a creative department that does what copywriters you have. Like, I just, what is this world? Yeah. Cause I come from a product sale background and the ERP implementation was pretty simple. So once we rolled it out, uh, I still had some time left in my contract. So I was just hanging out, meeting people. And there was a big meeting uh, in Oakville with Ford. And they're like do you want to come along because we need a digital guy at the meeting because they're a digital guy i'm like cool i've never been to ford i've never been to oakville (laughs) let's just go so they took me to ford and oakville and it was the first time i was i was hearing them talk about a digital campaign online traffic click-throughs conversion and they had no idea what the hell they were talking about man and uh, at some point in the meeting i don't remember exactly what i said but I said a bunch of shit, I'm like, you know, I think the online world, you're underestimating it. Your traffic plan doesn't make any sense. Your, your 1% conversion assumption makes no sense. I think your creative looks very blind, printed versus digital. And they're like, what do you know about this stuff? I was like, I don't know much, but I don't know enough to have an opinion because you guys are like print guys. And uh, Ford really liked what I said. And then we came back and, and, and the agency was like, okay, tell us like, what are we not talking about? And so we created a microagency within Pareto and we started pitching all these clients. Subway uh, was the second pitch. Shoppers Drug Mart was the third pitch. Air Miles was the fourth pitch and every pitch they were like, yeah, we want digital. We want digital. You got a new guy, digital. Da, da, da So it got to a point where like now I'm doing, you know, the digital strategy, whatever that meant. And now there's a small creative team that I assigned to me and we're spending time in, in like whiteboard sessions and taglines. And I'm like, we get paid for this. This is incredible. I had no idea there's a whole industry of creative people. They get paid to just think and design and come up with concepts. And clients will be like, this is shit, but still pay you? That's crazy. So I got hooked into it. Um, and then I told them, hey, let me build a little team formally underneath you guys, and I'll run it. Uh, thank God for me, the board unanimously said no. We want to be a uh, below the line agency and not above the line. And so. Uh, We don't want to do that. I said, cool. I'm going to go. And then it just so happens the day I resigned, uh, their creative director happened to resign and go on like this three-month adventure. Uh, So I said, you know, I like what this is. I think I can build my own little ecosystem of clients where I get to play creative and digital and strategy. uh, And then let's see what happens. So I incorporated Blue Band Media uh, in 2006. Blue Band Media. Blue Band? Yeah, Blue Band Media. Yeah. Uh, the blue band came from basketball. So high school, our coach used to make us all wear blue bands. So we felt like a team and didn't lead to a Cinderella championship or anything. <laughs> but I learned quickly how something simple like a blue band could connect people yeah. on a very emotional level just because we have something that's common, regardless of you know, who we are. And so I took that philosophy into, if I'm going to build the world's greatest digital agency, then we need to find <laughs> people that are uniquely good at something and then try to find a way to connect them to the bigger vision. Yeah, Like a big rubber blue band, that was the vision in my yeah. head. First logo was like this blue, it was horrible, yeah. it was crazy. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I got into the agency world, man. You know, 12 years ago, 2006. Okay, okay. So what kind of
1: agency was it? Like what did you guys
0: focus on? So our first uh, service was just web solutions. But at that time, Flash is king. Uh, I wanted to get into consumer marketing, CPG. Um, because after seeing what Quizno and these guys did, I was like, Sorry, ret- like flash
1: videos. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So
0: retail was good, but, uh, I, I like the, the, the consumer side of things. So when you walk into a shopping center, I'm like, everything here is a client. Every product is a client. Here's my market. Here's my market research. So we said, you know, how do we find CPG clients that are moving from traditional to digital? How can we find clients that are paying attention to consumers online? How can we bring gamification and creative thinking? Because mm-hmm. Flash was really good uh, at that time. And then four, how can we be a little rec- re- recession-proof? So I didn't want to go after the luxury guy. So I went after the, the food and the, and, the, and the staple stuff. So my very first client was actually cheese strings. And it took about six months to win that account. A <laughs> bunch of RFPs and pitches. Even though the brand manager was my, my really good friend, I still had to learn the ropes of how to go pitch. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about it earlier that's when i realized man brown guys going in to pitch a, a institution like parmalat with a, a a ecosystem that expects a certain look and feel no way you know so i hired my boy who's you know the creative director that came back from holidays he's six foot six beard tattoos got the vest he is the creative director <laughs> on paper okay right and then uh i ran The first two years with him as the face of the company, like we would go into meetings where nobody would even say hi to you. Cause they think I'm the tech guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until the business card comes out they're like, "Oh shit! Oh, you're the CEO." I'm like, "Yes, but it's okay. It's cool. Like, let's yeah, figure yeah, it yeah. out because yeah, yeah. we needed to just figure out how to get it done." Um, but I was my my first entrance into market. So from from you know uh, cheese strings, we moved into cheese and into milk. Then we moved into candy. Then we moved into meat. Then we moved into like lifestyle brands like NBA and then Canada Basketball. We got out to auto and then we went to QuickBooks and went to Fallsview Casino. Like over the twelve years. I've touched every category possible, either from a creative perspective, brand building uh, or storytelling. And so, you know, we changed the company name four years into it to Blue Band Brand and Digital. Uh, We had offices in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Costa Rica, uh, and a satellite in India.
1: Jeez. That's amazing growth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. It was fun. Uh, And then when we got to year 10, I think we were about 65 people, is when like, for the first time, I was in a deep depression because I didn't know how to handle it. I just, I came into work one day and I was like, holy shit, all of these people work for you. And that's just the people that I see. Then there's a team in Costa Rica that depends on you. There's a team in India, there's a team in Ottawa. It freaked me out. Yeah. Like, how do you handle it? How do you go to somebody and go, hey, I've got all this like good stuff happening, but I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't go to talk to your parents. You can't talk to other people about it. So I fell into this very deep depression for about a year. Uh and 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 I came out of it um, going, I gotta change stuff, you know. Uh, and you know, we can unpack it if you guys want. But there was a lot of layers that I had to figure out, uh, connect back to like why am I starting the agency? You know, when when do you exit? What does that look like? Um, and then when I came out of it, like the time to package this up, my passion is not there anymore. Mm. Um, I also don't want to be the 50 year old agency guy replying to pitches and RFPs. and i only had a five-year plan for that agency i'm already in it for 12 years let's restructure and sell and then figure out what my next adventure is in my 40s and then here we are
1: Jeez, that's i mean that's quite a journey like i mean at what point like tying back your parents into this right mm-hmm. um I mean, at what point did they finally understand what you're doing or is that still an issue? You know, um, I,
0: I don't think they really understood. I think my, for many years, the version that I saw was my 14 year old self from my parents, regardless of what success I had, you know, winning awards, you know, entrepreneur of the year, dah, dah, dah. none of it mattered in my head because I saw the 14 year old version still looking for approval. Yeah. Even at Daisy Fest with 100,000 people. I still never got what I thought was an approval that I needed. Um, And then year 10, my dad died of cancer. And at that point, I had nothing to prove anymore. So then the business was doing good. I've broken some of the boundaries I wanted to break. We're winning awards, I had a great team. Uh, Money was good, but when he died, I didn't have anybody else to like prove, I didn't have a villain in my life. So that emptiness created a different type of depression because I had nothing to like, who was I competing against? Because he was the villain in my head, right? So then, then this interest in this business was no longer there because what's the point? Yeah, I did what I needed to do. Yeah. I have nothing else to prove. And then you start to ask deep questions like, do I really give a shit about this RFP? Do I care about another yoga promotion? How much do I give a shit that shopping centers make more money because we got involved? I didn't anymore i did in the beginning but once i didn't it made no sense to be in it because another adventure that i'm missing out every day that i sit in this adventure what
1: year was this around
0: this is 2016 15 around there okay yeah okay. and i had a bit of a cancer scare the year before yeah, so all of this sort of tied in because how you feel inside is really how you project outside right
1: yeah yeah absolutely and so tying so it back to Ryerson, right? Like being an alumni from Ryerson and all this, like how did the relationship progress? Like after you graduated, did you keep in touch or like?
0: Nothing, nothing. Until they called oh. me, which was after the PR letter went out that I sold the company.
1: Which company? Uh, Blue Band, Blue Man. Band, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, we announced in 2017 uh, that uh, we sold. Uh, uh, did you
1: disclose, uh, can you disclose how much you sold?
0: No, it's all blocked okay. up. Yeah. Uh, but I did good, like six figures. Everybody's happy. Um And, you know, agencies also don't make a lot of money because everything is so tied to the owner, right? So my fear was the longer I stayed in it, the less useful I become. Mm. Because at some point, you're just a figurehead. And you could see in the industry how so many agency owners that are in their late 40s and 50s want to get out, but they can't. Because there's too much debt, there's too much income buried, and there's too much time invested that they don't know what else they can do. And I don't want to be stuck in that. And I remember uh, we were in a milk presentation. It was an RFP, brand manager, young, like 25, 26-year-old, young brand manager, first real gig. And she's briefing us. And there's me in the room. Uh, there's another shop from uh, Montreal or Ottawa, I think. And the president was there. He's like pushing 65, like he's taking notes in his hands. And I'm like, man, this guy can't get out. He couldn't get out because he's so deep into the ecosystem. And I remember going home that day going, man, if I don't consciously get out, or I don't consciously blow up, there's no middle ground. You're dying, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And I didn't have the stamina or the interest to grow any bigger because I still had no partners. It was just me. Yeah. Right. Uh, I had employees that were invested in the company, but on paper, I was the only partner. So there's only so much you can do. So I was like, man, I can't, I can't do much more. Uh, so I need to exit. I need to package it out. But that was a very interesting moment. Like that whole pitch, I don't even remember what I said or what the RFP was. I was just so focused on this other human being who I thought I could fall into the same trap. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to exit, you know. Um, and I think it's one of the best decisions I made because it still gave me the success of an exit with room to reinvent. yeah. yeah.
1: Man. Okay, so let's let's continue that journey, right? Like, yeah. So, 2016, you s- sold the company. Yeah. APR. Um, um So,
0: 2017, start of the year, I get an email from the dean um, saying, "Hey, we'd love to meet with you." And I was like, "Here we go." They want the they want the checks now. <laughs> you know, they caught the alumni fish. I'm like, ah. I go for lunch. I met Dean Imogen, amazing woman, um, and she's like, "Look, you know, this is what we're doing. We're starting an incubator. We need some leadership." I'm gonna pair you up with the with professor Brian Covista He's also from Scarborough. Uh, you know you guys will make a great pair. I uh, love Brian really passionate a lot of students love this guy. He really cares about the success of every student that he that he teaches. Uh, together I think you guys should do something really cool. So here's the academic professor. And like my villain, most of my school life. And then I'm like his homie now, the entrepreneur guy. Well, we go. And then we, we built this thing called the Science Discovery Zone from zero to 48 companies uh, across chemistry, biology, physics, engineering, computer science, life science, innovation, yeah. um, from startup to commercialization. Uh, we we're able to raise some money through government funding and some private partners. Uh, beautiful office by Gerard Street, by Ryerson there. Uh, and I got pulled into all the ecosystems. We even set up an UMA Foundation uh, scholarship for, for students that are first generation in the university for the next five years. That's how vested I am in like, this ecosystem yeah, yeah, yeah. now. Uh, so that was the first time I got into it. I'm like, man, this is so amazing. But there's also this is really interesting dark side. And when, once you see it, you can't ignore it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So... Legal Innovation Zone. Sorry, Legal Innovation. Zone. Science that Discovery. Was, Zone. That was our previous. Uh, yeah. Previous guy. Science Discovery Zone. Yeah. That's what it was called, and it was the RISE. Pretty much, they scouted you for this to run this program, and you started that in 2017. Yeah, 2017. What was your involvement with that? Like, was that a permanent part? Like, oh, a, from
0: day one. Like everything from business planning right? to interviewing the companies that came in, uh, personally coaching and mentoring. You know, over a hundred different startups in the last two years. Um, and, and that's why, I, you know, for me, like coaching and mentoring is new because I've only done it for my staff. But the objective was very clear. You know, I want to help you do your job better so that, you know, the bottom line is better. Like, it's a very self-serving prophecy. I care about you, but I'm also caring about my business Absolutely. here. I have no. I'm not an owner. I'm not a vested partner. I'm just helping because you said I need help. And that's brand new for me. Right. Um, and so it took a while to like, figure out, you know, uh, how to do that because I'm not a therapist. I don't want to get into, you know, counseling. We all have our own scars. I'm not, you know, perfect. Uh, there's only certain business things that can help. Uh, I've never raised money. I'm, I I believe in customer money and organic market fit, taking a dollar, turning it into a hundred. So if you don't believe in that then we don't click, Mm. you know, if you're, I'm going to make an idea, pitch and raise money and go, okay, that's a different person. You know, I like the grind and the hustle and the dirt and like, that's me like that makes me happy in life so if, if that's you i can help you If that's not you then that's cool too so yeah. it took me a while to figure out my own voice uh and then six months into the gig uh the associate dean marcus who's uh who's a brazilian uh, had a chance to go speak in brazil and he couldn't go so he said hey you know you're the entrepreneur in residence Do you want to go to Brazil? And I'm like, hell yeah, you know, why not? You know, Uh, so I went to Brazil and spoke about entrepreneurship, Canadian ecosystem, and then just my life, you know, on how I got there. And it struck a chord. And then since 2017, I've been going back to Brazil almost every three to four months for speaking gigs. Uh, And I met some really cool, you know, tech startups there, incubators. Uh, And then we realized, hey, there's an opportunity to coach founders in an emerging market and give them new blueprints that they didn't even know they could have access to because so much of their operating guidelines are what we used to do in the 2000s Mm. their first level ideation are things we've seen and failed here already kind of feel like Michael J Fox with the book you know I'm like oh I've seen this page it's not gonna work let me help you pivot Um, and so that led to signing some MOUs with local governments incubators and tech startups to to see if we can bring entrepreneurship education, some funding for investment and some coaching. And we have our first incubator set up in South of Brazil uh for that it's launched officially you know in january but we've been soft landing it for so the so this is launched now yeah yeah, yeah. we have an incubator in in, in brazil now okay yeah Ballot group is officially set out uh kind of like this in a co-working space called fabrica so what, why did
1: you choose brazil like what so
0: a be couple of things latin america is is an incredible place to watch right now mm. uh there's funding there's smart people there's innovation and they're hungry there's a political discord and people are turning to entrepreneurship as a way out yeah Right. Like we're talking to mothers that are trying to set up a Shopify store to make an extra hundred bucks a month that would change their lifestyle. Incredible, man. Yeah. And it's possible now. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for me, that's really exciting to be surrounded by hungry people that are innovating and asking questions and pivoting. And I'm able to be like a 10% pivot for them, which is really exciting. You know, uh, here, a lot of times, um, the cup is full so it's hard to like give people anything Mm because everybody kind of knows what they want and they're asking for validation more than real support you know they're looking for yes men they're looking for people to say yeah you're right versus no this doesn't make any sense but in brazil it's a wide open market it's a wide open next beast and so you know i was lucky enough to be in there at the right time right place and i always look at these things and go why does the universe align a brown kid from Scarborough?" to go to brazil six <laughs> times in 2017 yeah like yes i'm a good keynote speaker and all this stuff but there's a shit ton of people that are better bigger and more stories and so it's got to be a purpose and then when you start paying attention to those kind of simplicities and moments you realize ah, okay there's a version of me that could help then let me do that right uh, a good friend of mine uh, Clayberson, who runs a company called Mission Canada. Uh, every six months he brings a bunch of Brazilians here and they do the route and incubation and meet people. Uh, and so I was able to meet a bunch of companies that came here. And I also realized the same issue where, you know, in Canada we're really good at trying to attract talent, but we don't set them up properly for success. And we do the, the very tip of the iceberg, you know, great place to live, culture is awesome, you know, lots of opportunities for money. And But we don't actually tell them the other part, the hustle, the grind, the cash flow, the burn, the sales cycle, the market fit, all the stuff that they haven't thought about until they get here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I meet so many entrepreneurs and they're just burning money and stress because they haven't asked the right questions. Yeah. And, and so when the chamber, Brazilian chamber figured out that I was going back and forth. Then I became one of the committee members, (laughs) the first brown guy to be on the startup committee of a Brazilian Chamber of Commerce. And I started working with Brazilian companies. And so I I do a lot of work with the Brazilian startups now. And we've now got, you know, uh, a formal program called Can Connect that teaches Brazilian companies uh, how to ask the right questions before they come here. And then when they're ready to expand, we have another program that allows you to expand with customers. So I, I concur a lot from what you guys are doing, which is, you know, real deep sales strategy and customer acquisition, Yeah. yeah. which yeah. is, I think, a, a a topic that everybody talks about, but nobody actually talks about the how. Yeah. It's very fluffy. Yeah. You know.
1: Absolutely. And one of the main reasons why I'm doing that is realizing how many startups require that kind of work. Yeah. And no one's actually getting their hands dirty and doing it for yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Everyone gives us advice or here's a guidebook or, you know, figure it out kind of manual, but no one's actually doing it for them. Yeah. Um, and it's such an in-demand thing.
0: Yeah, and it's a beautiful skill, man, to be able to go out and build trust and get somebody to give you a dollar. And yeah. you know, I tell people, like, you, you want to challenge how good your family is? Go see if the family will give you a buck. Our families won't give us a dollar. You're going to expect some stranger to give you a 10 grand or 20 or 50 grand commitment. There's an art to it. There's a science to it. There's a build-up to it. There's a but relationship it was like to it. like
1: your first sale that you can like, be like, whoa. Somebody uh i think me money for
0: yeah i think the the first time i really understood money was when i was selling Backley, the construction company um because that was my first formal pitch up to then it was like little you know hundred dollar two hundred dollar websites and this and that That was the first time i had to write a proposal um and i remember walking into that meeting there was like nine people in the boardroom and they're all there to listen to my pitch and i'm in like this 99 dollars suit from international from scarborough Town center and it's like just ghetto enough where i'm like oh this feels weird yeah this, this, this green suit is a little too shiny <laughs> uh you guys seen the suit everybody's seen it man uh and i bought like two for one so i had two of them <laughs> uh, but anyhow uh, i'm sitting there sweating presenting this thing and then we get to the last page and then you know, I've been reading a lot of these consulting books up to then. And, and I remember one of them was like, when they get to the last page, you shut up and you just be quiet and it will get really loud in your noise and you want to justify and just shut up and just wait.
1: Last page is the prices, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So I remember he got to the page and he's looking yeah. at it. I'm like, just Don't, and every part of me wanted to talk about like my price. It's like, no, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to be quiet. I'm pinching myself. And it felt like a 30 minute wait. It was literally like 30 seconds. He's like, okay, this makes sense. Anybody else has an objection? Most of them are like, to be honest, we don't get the pricing because we never priced tech before, but if you think it's fair, let's do it. I'm like, okay, let's do it. (laughs) And then I was on a Monday and they're like, we'll have a check ready for you the next Monday. And I had $180 in my bank account. And uh, by the time I got to Monday, I had $25 in my bank account and I needed to fill up gas to go to Bolton to pick up the check. Cause she was like, I can mail it or you can come pick it up. I was like, no, no, no I'm coming. I'm in, <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in the neighborhood today. You know, I'll come pick it up. Yeah. So then I had to find, uh, I was at RBC and they can only take you out 20 bucks. I didn't want to take out 20 bucks. So I had to go to a BMO to take out $10 so I could fill up $10 gas to go to Bolton to pick up the, the twenty grand check, deposit it, and the life changed. Jeez, it's crazy, crazy. man. It's, that's a real story. Like yeah, I literally yeah. couldn't take out the money, and and it was it was incredible. Like you can't, you know, and it, it toughens you up. Yeah, you know, you 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 kind of figure out what you're made of. Yeah. And I think for me, entrepreneurship, starting a business, all the stuff we're doing, it's it's. The greatest gift is not revenue and customers and accolade. It's a small glimpse into what you're made of. And a lot of us don't get that. A lot of us go through life without ever answering that question of like, what are you made of? And that for me is like the greatest gift of doing what I've done so far. But all the other stuff is a great benefit. But I know intimately who I am and I, I think is a gift. Jeez.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's that's a really good, great story. It's a really great story that really shares and shows about great determination and just hustle, right? But like, I mean, one of the things is like just talk about the business problem that you had there of, of qualifying your work, right? Like understanding about how to price. That's something that people struggle with a lot. Oh, 100%. Off, right? Like, do you, do you struggle with that at all ever? Like with pricing? Yeah, I mean, pricing
0: is a weird thing, right? Because, you know, uh, there's a lot of perception that goes into pricing. So for example, uh, we sold a, Two hundred eighty thousand dollar app to Cadillac Fairview. Okay, I could have sold the same app for seventy five thousand and still make money. The tech is the same cost to me, but the perceived value is what we're trying to change. Yeah. And to create a perceived value, you need to create a background story, and that's where a lot of the brands that I work with don't have it. So. By the time we got to a kind for like we were able to say, "Yeah, the reason it's a three hundred thousand dollar app is because look at the client pedigree we have, look at the team, look at our office, look at the skill sets I'm putting in front of you. All these create a rationalized perception, right? But if you're working in a co-working space and you're a guy with a small office, even if you think you can charge two three hundred, the perception blocks you, yeah. right? And so most of the time, as as a as a founder and also some somebody running a company. I'm very conscious about what investment are we making into creating the perception that we want to create. It's the same reason why I'm creating this daily vlog on LinkedIn. It's not just to share my story, mm-hmm. but it's to connect to everybody that believes in the underdog because that's the community I need to build to create an incubator that supports underdogs.
1: Yeah. yeah right.
0: Yeah. If you've never experienced the pain of what I'm sharing, you can't resonate to the people I want to serve. You, we can't be in the same room. So, to attract that community, I'm creating a perception by being 100% transparent into things I typically wouldn't talk about if it wasn't this path. Right? So when I reach out to somebody and say, hey, I need help, they've understood the context of where I come from. And then we operate from a different relationship. So for me, sales is no different. Mm -hmm. I need to create the perception that I want you to see and I need to back it up. So when you look me up, when you read about me, when you run into somebody who says something about me, that story is completely crafted to fit my perception. So by the time Cadillac Fairview got knocked into us, they already knew we're the best in the business. Mm -hmm. They already knew we had the retail depth. They already knew through their networks how good we are and that we can deliver something in eight weeks when nobody else can. Okay. Okay. You know, if they would have paid 500 I would have charged 500 <laughs> right? But we knew the limit was there. So we sort of took a guest on, you know, the gap. Yeah. We did it, you know. Uh, but it was a time where, fuck, I was doing, you know, $800 WordPress sites. Because that was the bottom feeders we needed to cover rent yeah, yeah. until we changed our story. And so, so much of what I do is about storytelling. Whether you're, you know, a startup or a $100 million company. It's the story that creates the connections, it creates the trust and the perception for you to go ask for money.
1: That's great, yeah. So, I mean, just to finish off your story there, right? like Legal Innovation Zone, like when did you stop working with them or do you still work with it? Science them?
0: recovery zone. It's okay. Yeah, Legal Innovation Zone is dope. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, my contract with them officially ended, it started in 2019. Yeah. So I spent two years there uh, and then they have a new interim director. Okay. Uh, they're on a different path, uh, more focused on, research and science uh, versus commercialization and go to market, which is great. You know, I, I, I did my time. I got what I needed out of it. And and truthfully, if it wasn't for that experience, I wouldn't have seen the other things that allowed me to create this version going forward. I wouldn't have seen the pain. I wouldn't have seen the issues. I wouldn't have got into this fight. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have done something different. I don't know. But now that I've seen the fight, I'm really excited. I think we could do some really cool stuff to create opportunities people that are blocked
1: yeah absolutely yeah perfect man this is an awesome like thank you for coming on and oh this is great man thanks for letting story. me like, share yeah absolutely it's been <laughs> a great like, i don't think i've ever gone into this detail in someone's like career path as an entrepreneur and you as like, a down-to-the-earth like nitty-gritty like really grit focus hustler i uh, really appreciate that and really appreciate you sharing that part of that uh, of your lifestyle right at that time like, yeah no, uh, sales and building companies and your motivation behind that, you got to really deepen that and I appreciate that.
0: No, man. thank you, man. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is create that visibility for people that, you know, entrepreneurship has gotten sexy yeah. and entrepreneurship has become this no-barry, easy to get in. But really, if you think back to why would anybody want to lose the discomfort of a nine-to-five is because they've, they've got a life discomfort that they have to solve. And the only way to do that is becoming your own person. And sometimes... We want to be entrepreneurs without the discomfort. But the growth as a human happens in that discomfort. And so when I'm talking to people, I say, "Hey, if you want to be an entrepreneur, know that that's your real journey. You growing into a different person through the vehicle of this business, the success of failure, you can't control. There's so many variables, economics, competition, sales, market, blah, blah, blah. You can't control all of it, Mm. but you can 100% control your personal growth. So that becomes your priority. The rest, you can win by default. Yeah. And that's the mission we're trying to do. And that's the purpose of Ballor Group and AC Fest and all these other things I do. And I don't know, we'll
1: keep doing it until my time's up. Absolutely. This is amazing. Thanks and for having me. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah. hopefully we can see more of you and be able to support uh, what you're doing online. Appreciate it, man. Thank right. you. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Awesome, man. Uh, oh, good <laughs> to meet you guys.